I got the gang with me. Uh, when I say gang, it kind of feels like like a Scooby Doo mystery or I'm in an Archie or something. You have a but, different uh, view of a gang than me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I want to introduce Jack uh, at the Cardboard Herald. Say hi, Jack. Hey, I'm here. And we've got Luke, aka the Budget Board Gamer. Heyo, how's it going? And I'm just Chris, uh, a normal guy. And we're going to be talking about all kinds of stuff today. What I wanted to start off with was what you guys thought of the other side of the Azul board. Okay. Oh, this is a great topic. I love it. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Luke needs to take this away because he's the one who actually reviewed that stuff for us. Let me just snap my neck back and forth real quick. Uh, (laughs) So when I first played Azul, you know, you play on your average side of your board. You've got your your little layout and it's like, okay, this is a quaint, you know, abstract game. I, I enjoy this. This is cool. You know, whatever. Like it's smart and it's it's got that back and forth and it's clever. And then you're like, all right, what's going to – the next game is just going to be the same way, right? When I first played it, it was with my buddy Chris and um, on the on the blank side. For those of you who aren't aware, the other side of Azul, basically you can put your tiles anywhere you want on the board just as long as it still follows that Sudoku-style ruling of one color per column and per row. Right. Which ultimately means that you can totally screw yourself – out of being able to play certain spots. So I've played games where, you know, I've I've maneuvered myself into a no-win position where I can't fill out my entire board. But there's also the strong strategy of I'm just going to place my tiles in a very close, tight-knit section in the corner of my board as quickly as possible and try to end the game before my opponent can really catch up to me. So are you more of a Nazul or a Sagrada guy at this point? Because I know, like, online, there's just debates back and forth. Here's the thing. They are two very different games, in my opinion. You know, Azul is a uh, a heady, abstract, very harsh game. It's in your face. It's like, you know, I am actively trying to screw you over when I do things. Azul, don't mess around. In Sagrada, there is that aspect to it, but it's not as pronounced. You don't... I don't feel like you do actions in Sagrada to intentionally mess someone up. You always do something to your benefit rather than to someone's detriment. And the two experiences, the other thing that makes it super different is like Sagrada is quick, much quicker, I think. It's more of a light opening game, whereas Azul is like almost a medium weight game, I would say, in terms of the uh, meta strategy of it. Crunchier. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. We just d- dug into the uh, Sagrada expansion, and it totally plays to your point, Luke, because they give you a uh, uh, your own private dice pool. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that hot Tina Turner track, private dice pool. <laughs> <laughs> My own private dice pool. Of course. I didn't realize that that came out yet. I've, I've actually been very interested in checking that out. How um, how do you feel it plays with that little uh, variant aspect to it? Um, I liked it. My, my Of course, we've talked about before, my wife's not big in the whole take that. So it there's less dice in the public pool to go to. And then you can there's abilities to swap them with the dice in your private pool. It definitely opens up more options. I could see it being fantastic with more people. But it... It changed, it changed, it's hard to explain. It seemed to change a part of the game for me. Like, not all going after the dice pool, it was a lot different. It seemed a little bit more solitary that way. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I, again, with more player count, higher player count, I can see it really, really being a little bit more versatile. But I liked having, you know, I, I'd swap my dice into my pool, like, you know, two dice down, knowing I was going to get it three later. And and it definitely opened it up trying to get into the uh, into the grid easier with with options. But uh, I don't know. We've only played it a couple times. Um, we're going to do a first impressions on it. It's kind of a, I guess we just did. But um, sure. my wife's got some interesting opinions about it, too, that I was like, okay, all right. So uh, that'll be coming down the pipe. But it's, it's very interesting. Definitely check it out. Definitely check it out. I totally hijacked this by bringing up Sagrada. But what's going on with the Azul backside of the board for you, Chris? You were all like, I need to know about this. Tell me about it. So yeah, what's going on? Yeah. I was getting ready to get to that. Well, you know, we're we're finding a lot of trying to memorize the pattern. So we've actually uh, uh, turned another board over and being like, okay, so if my red one is in this blue position, then we got to make sure it's patterned out like this. And we found ourselves kind of uh, end up blocking ourselves way more. It just seems like so much more um, pattern remembering. I don't know. It's I like it. I like it a lot. Um, I don't want to say I like one over the other, over the other, because I feel like both of them kind of give me something that I like out of the game. So to me, that just right. makes it all better. All makes it all better. But, but um, yeah, it's 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 more challenging, obviously. But trying to remember, it was like um, like I don't know if you guys ever play a game called Enchanted Forest. It's an old <laughs> classic little. It's just basically there's items under trees and you go around. And you got to remember where the items are. First one to collect all the items wins, and you just go around a board. This reminded me of that on that other side because I felt like I kept having to remember. All right, if this is in this position, then I'm gonna have to play all of these blues like this, or I'm gonna have to play all these reds like this. And then it was confusing up December too when she was trying to look at me and and counter my strategies and stuff. It was tripping her up because now she I'm remembering where I'm putting my stuff and where she's putting her stuff without the pattern on the other side. It was just a lot. Uh, again, which is a good thing for me. It was way heavier. I really liked it. Mm. It sounds like hostile patchwork. <laughs> I mean, hostile patchwork is just Baron Park. Oh yeah, I guess so. That that makes sense. Which I'm just currently making a trade for because I freaking adore that game, and it is out of print, which is ridiculous. Didn't it just come out? So is it out of print, or is it just like a limited print run, and they're just it, working it, on it, manufacturing it came out more? Like two years ago. That's a two-year-old game. Uh, more of that delightful Clemens Franz artwork to add to the greater cinematic Franz verse. I mean, yeah, no, the art's kind of poopy. I, I'll I'll give you that one for a hundred percent sure. It <laughs> makes me feel like Castles of Burgundy makes me feel every time I pull out the box where it's like this is a lovely game. If only I like to look at it. Well, the bears on the front <laughs> are at least cute. I don't want to completely dunk on the man. He's got he's got his sense of style. It's cohesive. It's just cohesive right. in a way that I, mean, I fact, wish it were different. The fact that he includes koala bears within the bear family is egregious beyond uh, all uh but adorable. beyond all explanation. Oh, koala bears like a cousin. Yeah, that's good science. I like it. Right? <laughs> that's why you come to the Cardboard Herald. It's for science. For board games and science. Science fact. That should be a new Koala segment. bears are cousins of all other bears. So, you learned something today. Hey, what's up, Grizzly? Yo, check out my cousin Koala. Thank you. <laughs> um, all right, my only other, other, other thing that I was going to bring up was... Um, was the Viticulture Tuscany 
Jack, I know you played some of this, right? Yeah. Okay. Uh, Luke, you played much Viticulture? I, I, I played some Viticulture. It was not something that I wanted to play anymore, but I've played the base game, the Essential Edition. Yeah, mm-hmm. we've established Luke doesn't like good games, so go ahead and talk about Viticulture. Yeah. <laughs> right, 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 absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, well, that's one of our top ones, and we finally got this uh, Tuscany expansion, which is a funny story because when we originally got Viticulture, we got the Tuscany, and we were like, hey, this game's called Tuscany, and then we brought it home, and we were, we were like, oh, shit, this is an expansion? What's an expansion? This was really early when we started doing this. <laughs> it's a confusing we took, one. We, we took it back, and we took it back, and then we were like, oh, well, there's no, like, the Viticulture game ain't here, so we took it back, and then we ended up scoring Viticulture like a couple months down the road, and then we were like, shit, we should have kept... My whole thing was we should keep it because we know we're going to get the game. My wife is like, you know, responsibilities and priorities, etc. And so <laughs> we made the call. And uh, then I, and when we played, we were like, oh shit, we should have totally kept that Tuscany uh, expansion. Now, there's a couple things about it that I thought were interesting. You know, I was reading some stuff about how I guess they made this Tuscany expansion just because of like kind of people's feedback, I guess... You know, I was reading something um, with Jamie Stigmeyer saying something. Well, the original Viticulture is supposed to be with that original board. That's how it is. That's how it goes. But they um, listened to the people and put this expansion out. And I think it's brilliant. I can see the differences in both the, the, the games. Um, but I actually, of course, cannot play this game without the, um, without the Tuscany expansion and the worker placement spots in each um in each uh, 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 each season, um, I, I don't think I could go back to doing it the other way. Although it does seem like heavier now, it seems like you're doing a, a little bit more when you're bringing viticulture to the table now. But um, I don't know, it cleaned up some things for me. Well, you know, the thing about Tuscany is that it, it had this weird process of coming to what it is right now, or rather Viticulture and Tuscany as separate entities. There was the original Viticulture, and then the expansion Tuscany came out, which was Stonemeyer Games' attempt at making a quasi-campaign legacy element that had all this other stuff that you can't okay. even get anymore. I, I think there might be print-and-play files online that Stonemeyer mm-hmm. finally put out for, like, the cheese expansion and all kinds of other stuff. But... Okay. Then they ended up going, yeah, Tuscany is just bloated. There's too much in it. And so they took some of the modules and they stuck it back into base game Viticulture and published Viticulture Essential Edition. And then the other elements that were still good, but just too advanced, they made Tuscany Essential Edition. So Viticulture Essential Edition has probably the the best elements of Tuscany it has the the grande worker and it has right. some of the um I, I want to say that some of the extra cards are put into yep. there they are but yeah. then mm-hmm. viticulture the mamas and papas yeah yeah totally then um yeah. Tuscany yeah. I'm sorry because it, you're right it's almost impossible to talk about the differences here the the Tuscany and Viticulture you want to think of them as separate games I don't even think Viticulture is prominently announced anywhere on the front of the box um it's not yeah <laughs> I think I even commented on that on the review uh but in Tuscany Essential Edition, now you got the star map where there's like an area right. control element. You got the four seasons. You got all of the special workers who are super cool and like the best 
meeples in existence until Root, which we'll get to. But it is a, a really great expansion, but it definitely adds to the complexity of the game. And I often describe Viticulture Essential Edition as one of the most perfectly designed boxes because it's yeah. got a ton of content. It has a lot of replayability in there. There's some branching strategies where you can approach the game in different ways, but it's not so much that it would be completely overwhelming for someone who just likes kind of lighter, medium weight games or is relatively new to tabletop gaming. It's not going to be something perfect for beginners, but still it's one step up. If you play Catan, if you play Carcassonne, this is a larger step, but it's still a step you could make. And by that standard, if you were to have a game without any expansions, Viticulture Essential Edition is so damn good. Tuscany, yeah. if you're like a, an advanced elite hacks or gamer like the three of us are, and we mm, like our right. big games, then Tuscany is what's going to make it that really meaty game that you you want. Mm. Yeah, you know, th- this is like our, it's very, it feels like classy, adult, this is our like Friday night, Saturday night, <laughs> adult chilling game, you know, and because it's got a little bit, we got tons of other stuff to do with the kids, you know, it's like, hey kids, let's go make wine. Nah, that's why this one works so well. And you know, that actually that star system, I guess, was created by like a fan or something. Like, it yeah. was like a player that that in or something like that that's kind of Stagy cool. is all about getting that fan input in order to do his sweet sweet work for him <laughs> i'm mean, sorry this was a very uh prominent example of that mm-hmm. like where he likes to bring in a lot of fan ideas which i think is definitely a very thoughtful and unique part of how stonemeyer games has sort of represented fan feedback yeah very the... few companies really hear or recognize that sort of thing like Stonemeyer has, I think because of, um, you know, you said Steggy too many times and now I can't think of his actual last name. Stegmeyer. Stonemeyer yeah, Stegmeyer. There it is. It's like Stegosaurus um, and Stonemeyer Games. Right. But like companies like Stronghold Games are notorious for just not even doing customer service well. St- uh, Stonemeyer has a great reputation and the fact that it started as far back as Tuscany really I think speaks to their legacy in that respect. Yeah, I'm really liking all of the stuff that they're putting out. I just yeah. Yo, between two cities, uh I can't wait for between two castles or whatever of Mad King Ludwig. That game looks freaking amazing. I want it. I want it in my tummy. I want it also <laughs> on my, my board, like on no. the table. Yeah, I'm so I, excited for that game. Dig into it. I, I was already a little bit excited for that, but then I did an interview with Ben Rossett, the co-designer mm-hmm. of that game, and now I'm like so jazzed about it. It is the new hotness that I need to get my hands on. Oh, absolutely. 100%. Awesome. All right. So uh, for the sake of time, uh, let's move on. Jack, you want to go next? Yeah, I have a couple games listed here, and I'm realizing how long it's been since we had our last DCBH Hangouts (laughs) recording because of how old some of these games listed are here. So I'm just going to blow through a few of these. Homebrewers is a game also co-designed by Ben Rossett that uh, was recently kickstarted by Greater Than Games and Dice Hate Me because those are one and the same company essentially now. Uh, Maybe just different imprints they combined a while ago, but... It is 
a really cool uh, entry level, maybe maybe not lightweight, but um, a, a good gateway game uh, that's all about uh, homebrewing. It's got some dice action selection that's also tradable actions I really like. And it's it's just a phenomenal distillation of a lot of really, really complex ideas into a much more approachable system. I also really like that it's got a lot of variability and it's got a really, really cool theme. And what's neat about it, most neat about it, and I, I talk about it in the review, which everyone should go check out, is that it, it's you think going into any sort of game that's about manufacturing something that we all know, like beer, you'd think that it's all about, well, you got to get your hops and then you got to you get the refinery and you got to get all the different resources and line it in order to produce resources and sell resources, blah, 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 blah. No, this is a game where you're actually equipping flavors onto different recipes and you have universal ingredient tokens and spending those. So it's not like you have to acquire five different resources to make an IPA versus making a lager. You're just using the same ingredient token as long as it's allocated in the appropriate area. And as you make it, you become more experienced in making that beer. You don't actually acquire any new resource. And then what that does is during the two phases or two rounds of the game where there is a um, a a uh, judging round at Summerfest and Oktoberfest, then uh. you are graded based off of how well you can produce beer. So basically your experience points lead to levels. It's almost kind of like an RPG type system. It's really neat. Uh, I really enjoyed the game and it, the Kickstarter is done now. So I guess just wait for it to come out. But I know the that this is a smaller, dicier version of Brewcrafter, which has been a really well-loved uh, worker placement game. So I guess pay attention to it. And then let's see here. Terraforming Mars expansions. Man, I've done reviews on all this crap, so I'm not going to talk about it much. Um, the Venus Next and Prelude, you can check those out. Prelude is the best. Venus Next is okay. I'm playing with it and continuing to play with it, but uh, Prelude is definitely the first expansion you should get. Like As soon as you decide you love Terraforming Mars, get Prelude. It is the absolute best. Chris, have you checked out Prelude yet? I know you were talking about finding it. I couldn't agree more. Yeah, we got it and played it with uh, a couple times now, and it's just uh, adds that purple to the game, you know. Yeah, it, it, it's like <laughs> it's like when you're watching Dragon Ball Z, and then any villain inevitably is like, "You fool! This isn't even my final form," and then transforms. That's exactly what Prelude yeah. does to uh, terraforming Mars. It it yeah. just makes it a. Uh, uh, Better, meaner, more awesome machine. And I don't mean mean as in you are being mean to your opponents. I mean mean as just like it is it, it is so much more of the feelings that you want out of Terraforming Mars. And it gets you into the game quicker. It gives you more customization. It's, it's phenomenal. Yeah, um, right off the bat, right off the bat, instead of just owning a corporation, you're like, I've got this corporation. I've got these two buildings and I've got a staff. And you just feel like, you know, you came in with not starting so primitive. It's like, all right, I came in with my core foundation here and we're going to go in this direction. Oh man, I loved it. Yeah. 
it's the best. And Luke, you need to give Terraforming Mars a try again with Prelude. Okay. I mean, I've played it twice so far, once without drafting and once with drafting. It's certainly, I think, better with drafting, but it still definitely feels like I'm playing a solo game in the corner by myself. And uh, eventually... I might play a card that'll steal some resources from you, but otherwise it's cool. You guys just do your thing. No, 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 no. You stay on that side of the room. Keep going. All right, you're good. Maybe there's a degree of that, but the the placement, once you get into trying to compete over the achievements or rather the awards, sure. the milestones, yeah. all that stuff, there is a ton of interactivity, or at least I find that there is. And the mm-hmm. moment someone starts putting some like trees down on Mars, then the, the hostile city locations start taking out. Oh, dude, yeah. I love terraforming Mars so much. And, <laughs> what's on the other side? What's on the other side of those trees? Yeah. It's just like, oh my god, it's the civilization that's hostile. And, yeah, yeah, and, and the the timing when to take two actions versus when to take one action on your turn oh. is so good. Like, you, you knowing, like, oh man, if I do this one action, I will get more resources, and this other action, I'll be able to put a tree down on the board, but that will signify that I'm trying to go after this uh, right. award or milestone, and they are going to then go, oh, I'm going to put down my tree and take that milestone. Oh, it's it's the best. I yeah. love terraforming Mars. But I like I like I like for making people forget that I for, making people think <laughs> that I forgot that there was two moves, and I'll be like one move, one move, one move, bam, bam, yep. corporation, strong arm, and bulldoze those trees down. I, I love delaying in the game where it's like I'm just going to take a really insignificant action to make sure that I'm in the round so someone else can bump up the heat just enough for me to claim the bonus right. out of it. It's like, oh, I will, I don't know, discard one card for a money. Your go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Please Absolutely. take your turn. Uh, let's let Luke <laughs> tackle a couple of things before I come back to root, because that's the thing that I most want oh, to talk about. I'm, so, I'm more sure. than ready to tackle root with you, but for now we'll, uh, we'll go into, uh, let's see. Do you want to hear about Orbis or do you want to hear about hunt for the ring? I want to hear about hunt for the ring because I, I am the Tolkien guy here. I need right. to hear uh, your remember, opinions and you, you to talk trash review. about it. I remember you did review for Hunt for the Ring. Uh, did you enjoy it? Was that something that you ended up keeping on your shelf? Absolutely. It was okay. one of my favorite games of last year. And awesome. I, I can't wait for this discussion. Yeah, I'm glad that we're keeping up uh, our usual standards. Okay, uh, so great. what did you hate about it? All right, so Hunt for the Ring, for those of you who aren't aware, is a... Uh, 1v many game where one player is playing Frodo and they're he's walking through the forest trying to you know oh the Robin Hood song just comes to mind you know little hobbit Frodo hopping through the forest Uh running from the Nazgul trying to get away uh anyway (laughs) I was thinking Kevin Costner oh dude I watched Prince of Thieves just like last week (laughs) it blew Christina and I's mind because we thought it was like sorry Luke I have to to go ahead ahead. because it was way better than it was yes so we hadn't seen it until like since middle school or something and both of us have these memories of it being one of the most epic well-produced movies of all time that was just like 
our band played the track. Like, yeah, we exactly. Oh, like, I have so many vivid memories. It was like one of the four VHS tapes that I owned. I had like Tombstone, that Mask of Zorro, and something else. And they were like my VHS tapes. I watched all the time, way too young. I, I it, It's a movie that I loved near and dear to my heart. And it w- made me think like Kevin Costner was this Oscar level actor. He may have gotten an Oscar at some point, maybe Field of Dreams. I don't know. But Christina and I were like, you know what? Let's just take a night off from games. Let's watch uh, some Prince of Thieves here. And I have no idea what movie I was remembering. I still have a lot of fondness for it, but that movie is whack. Like, it goes (laughs) through so many tonal shifts where it's suddenly like, you know all kinds of levity and laughing and happiness. And then all of a sudden the medieval version of the Ku Klux Klan is burning his father alive. And then you got like all kinds of really violent, violent taken seriously, violent scenes. You know, they're not tongue in cheek, even though Alan Rickman does his best to try to consolidate the silliness and the violence into one character and does a really good job with it. And it, just comes off like Kevin Costner is this total bro Robin Hood who is yeah. like assuming all the responsibility for everyone in England. Like, yo, what up? I mean, this is your struggle, but I'm going to have you fight to the I'm death. I'm the only guy. I'm the only guy without an accent. But exactly. I'm here for you. Morgan Freeman is like standing across from him. And he's like, Christian, I'm also from America. Why are you not talking with an accent? <laughs> I'm like, dude, come on. And, Oh, oh man, man. we had a great time rewatching it as well. Actually, so I, I'll leave it at this. I was not prepared for how explicit of a rape scene the marriage at the end between right? the sheriff of Nottingham and Maid Marian was, <laughs> and then he cracks a joke like he splits open her legs. I mean, they're both clothed, uh, but he splits open yeah. her legs with his legs, and it is very clear what he's trying to do. As the witch is like, "Yes, you must make a, your progeny. Yeah, we must have a baby after the marriage has been consummated." Blah blah blah, and it is terrifying. And then. He he makes a joke in the middle of it. He's like, I can't do this with all these distractions. I'm like, what is going on with this movie? Uh, Alan Rickman. So basically what I'm saying is in my memory, there was like, I I don't know, Lawrence of Arabia, Ben-Hur, Braveheart. And then, (laughs) you know, like this was the movie that led to Gladiator, you know, same level of direction, sophistication, everything. And I basically feel that exact same way now. It is 10 out of 10, the best movie I've ever seen. (laughs) (laughs) Don't get me started about Gladiator. Oh, and was that a Brian Adams song at the end? (laughs) Perfect. Don't get me started about Gladiator. But you know what? Sorry, Luke. We got to get back to the hunt for the ring here. Oh, yeah. That classic. (laughs) That classic ditty. So, uh, yeah, it's a 1v many style game with hidden movement, which is always Mm -hmm. interesting. But it, the game is split into two halves where the first half is like your average, you know, hidden movement game. And then the second half is like, remember that time when you got to control where Frodo goes? That's that's for the birds. That's in the past. You you can move around Gandalf and he can do things and help and stuff. But no, he, he's not important. Frodo's the important one. And, okay, uh, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me break it down. So the first time that I played it, uh, the people I was playing with, uh, 
we we didn't exactly understand the rules correctly, so I'm gonna. It doesn't matter. So, the, but my first experience with the game was not great because the rule book is like what 32 pages long, and it's like got so many different footnotes and exceptions and examples, and it was a mess to read through. And this was after having watched a video before as well. Some of the phrasing's just annoying and frustrating, but the rule book was not super helpful to my experience with it. The second thing to note is that this game is like four hours long, um, depending on who you're playing with. And, you know, uh, yesterday I played a two-player game, me and uh, my significant other, and the two of us started at 2 and ended at around 6.30 uh, with a half-hour break in between. So, you know, roughly four hours, give or take. And that's playing um, both the first half of the game and the second half of the game? Yes, correct. Okay. Which you can pause between games, which is a nice addition, but I think is never, ever, ever going to happen. Uh, that's like almost exclusively a... what we did. Well, I mean, here's the thing. Like, if I can't get a group of people to consistently come together for a legacy game, I'm not going to count on the fact that I'm going to have a group of people consistently come together for a second half of a game where the first half of the game feels like it didn't matter. Mm-hmm. Because the first half of the game, for me, in the two times that I played the first half, um, it never felt like the the resources that were spent in the first half really affected the second half enough to matter. Like, in between the games, Frodo had three corruption, which you need 12 corruption to lose mm-hmm. in the first half of the game. Um, he used up Frodo's ability, which was a big deal. That one I'll give you. You know, that's kind of a big swing. But otherwise... They had three cards. I had three cards. It felt like we were just playing round two as if round one didn't really happen Mm -hmm. outside of Frodo's ability not being there. Which, by the end of the game, Jess had like four fellowship tokens every turn. Like there was never a point where she wasn't just capped out. Where she would spend one in a round and then get it immediately afterwards. But the big thing for me is... In the second half of the game, Frodo's movement is dictated by cards. Yep. You draw into a card, either a long journey or a short journey card, and that tells you Frodo goes here, Frodo goes here next turn, and so on and so forth. And it's one space at a time. So while the first half of the game has this clever aspect of you can sit in the wilderness as long as you want and bide your time and then go out and escape through numbered locations by just rushing yourself through it, which that's a really interesting interplay. There is some like fascinating aspects of the movement in that regard. But in the second half of the game, every card is point to point to point. You go to here and then you go to this dot and then you go to this number and there's not that interesting interplay with that movement. Gandalf's movement is simplified, so it doesn't actually do that either. So the only characters who have to use the dots are the Nazgul who use them like normal spaces and not for that clever sort of hidden movement idea that is really well done in the first half of the game. But the big thing is that once you sort of get a rhythm down, depending on what turn it is, you know that Frodo is in this small section of the board. Like on turn three, I know there there are these four locations that I have to go to and check, and he's at one of those locations mm-hmm. for, for a fact because there's no way that he could have gotten any further than that because of how the cards are laid out. Some of the cards are slightly clever where they can double back 
but like for the most part, they're very straightforward. And so it can be incredibly easy to predict where the general area is going. But, but the big kicker that just breaks me, that just makes me frustrated with this game, is that in the second half of the game, when you find Frodo, his all of your all of your information up until that point, all of your tracking, all of your all of your stuff just goes away because Frodo gets a new path, and the new he draws a new card, and it's as if the old journey just didn't happen, and it's starting over from scratch. Mm-hmm. None of the information you collected up at that point matters, and so you are just scanning straight lines of locations for each turn spot as you try and find like okay it's turn seven he's got to be at one of these four locations but i have to check each one of them as best as i can while he's still there because in turn eight he'll move up one step further and so i just have to check those four locations now and it just never felt interesting or creative all right right. counterpoint so <laughs> you might just have to get good at the game, which may be too much to ask um, for for anyone to to enjoy or approve a game. Personally, I think that you have a lot of tools at your disposal. First off, I think this is absolutely a two-player game, and I mentioned that in the review. This is not something that I would ever want to play with more players because I think consolidating all the Nazgul into one player is totally the way to go. Second, I think that this is a game where you want to play in two different sessions because the the length of the game is too much, and it was designed such that you would and could play it in two sessions. I, I remember talking to both um, Francesca Nepotello and uh, Roberto D'Amelio, uh both about this game before it came out, and both of them were like, yes, we are designing this so that you can play it in two separate nights. And there is a degree of the first game not deciding the the second half of the game, but it, it does influence, and I think from like a narrative perspective, it feels kind of cool. Uh, as a big Tolkien fan, you know, getting to Bree during the first half of the game, Frodo carries over his corruption, which characters have spent their powers, and mm-hmm. the Nazgul have all their search tokens, so the better that you do during the, the first uh, half of the game as the Nazgul, then the more powers you will have during the second game, which is kind of cool. So it, it doesn't necessarily influence starting position or anything, but it does influence what sort of capabilities you have for both the Fellowship and the Nazgul during the latter half. Um, now, during the second half of the game, uh, and the first, every region is broken into, uh, I want to say it's six different regions or or i guess the board is broken into six different the sections yeah right uh and then you also have these big columns taking up a third of the board each and the nazgul can use the different uh ways of sniffing out the hidden mover and when you capture frodo he becomes corrupted to a degree and the more corruption that he gets the the closer he is to losing the game or that player is to losing the game and So this isn't a game where you exclusively have to capture the hidden mover once. You have to do it several times. Now, when you reset, like you're saying, and you have to draw a new card, that is a huge handicap to the Fellowship because they get corruption. Then I believe they also have to move back one space upon the track. And then uh, so you know that they have moved 
uh, one position behind themselves and they are having to start over again. And then you're using the Nazgul's abilities in order to use... um, uh, suss out what section of the board they're in, what mm-hmm. area on the board they're in, and then you can start piecing together the travel from there. Yeah, it, it is something where you lose all the information up until that point, but also the Fellowship has a lot less tools at their disposal in order to defend against the Nazgul finding them because of that automated movement that you were talking about. And controlling Gandalf, to me, is so incredibly cool because you can set up these barricades by having Gandalf appear, which is super risky, but it also is very, very powerful and can uh, be one of those situations where the Nazgul are like, yo, dog, we got him. And then you're like, Gandalf, you shall not pass. And then all of a sudden they are able to make their escape and start going in different directions that you weren't anticipating. (laughs) And then you also have the fact that Gandalf gives off the same aura, the same energy as the ring. So if someone is trying to pinpoint where you are using their like Nazgulian radar system, they know something is in this region. They're not sure if it's Gandalf or the hidden movers. Right. Unless you use the Morgul ring. Unless you use the Morgul ring, which if you didn't get the card that allows you to uh, bring in the Witch King. Nazgul King, yep. Or you didn't manage to collect enough uh, search tokens or whatever they're they're called during right. the first half of the game, then you don't have access to that extra die. So again, that's an incredibly important decision that the Nazgul player will have to make is, do I really hunt for the Fellowship during the first half of the game, or am I trying to blitz towards any of the search tokens that I can get so I have more power during the second half of the game? Mm. I can see why someone may not like it because there are a lot of points where you feel like you have less agency than other hidden movement games. But personally, even with those criticisms, uh, it's something that I felt was every time that I played a tense cat and mouse game uh, where we were trying to think around what other people were doing. Um, Sure. So yeah, I, I loved it. And that's, exactly why i made it one of the the critical hits of 2017 2017 we're in 18 now right yeah okay yeah yeah, yeah. Time so swine. why is it so good for two play- why is it so good for two players oh well i mean i mean for me <laughs> the nazgul each operate as their own separate turn but they <laughs> they don't have a a huge amount of Um, power individually themselves. And so if you are one player controlling one Nazgul, it's kind of like, eh, I just got to take my turn. And then everyone else is going to take their turn. And there becomes this huge debate among all the players of where could Frodo be? Where could could he be over here? Should we move over here? And there's too much analysis. Whereas if you are one player controlling all the Nazgul, it doesn't feel like you have too much extra baggage. Like you still only have one hand of cards. You have one pool of dice. You're not having to split that pool of dice with other player and be like, well, do you want to use the ring token? Should I use the ring token? You know? And you are able to feel like each Nazgul is just an extension of your capabilities instead of feeling like I just have one quarter of the pie. 
I don't like a lot mm-hmm. of games where you're playing two distinct characters. Like I, I hate playing yeah. something like Fury of Dracula, where I am playing two hunters and I have two hands and I have to handle two different movements and it feels like two completely distinct turns. In Hunt for the Ring, every time that I played as the Nazgul, I felt like I could easily execute one, two, three, four, be done with my turn and not feel like there was a ton of baggage. Sure. I can agree that this is definitely built best as a two-player game. Um, comparison of the the night prior versus last night, it was a very different experience in terms of interacting with the Nazgul, and I do agree that they work a lot better under one coherent sort of control. I think that makes the game a lot more enjoyable than trying, like you said, to split resources, especially since, like, you have your one hand of cards because no matter how many players there are, each player gets one card at the start of the game or whatever it is. They get one hand of cards, and I think that makes it a lot more strategic and interesting to interact with. Um, I think m- one of the bigger barriers that I faced was the rules changes in between rounds one and round two mm-hmm. were a bit overwhelming for um, the other player because uh, my significant other hasn't played too many board games at this point. Her only experience, uh, her most complex experience before she met me was Betrayal at House on the Hill. Okay, so, like, yeah. Throwing them into the deep end that here. that we're warming up to, that we're building up to, that we're sort of... <laughs> You know, working through, and she did very well. She actually won as Frodo with one corruption left on her track. There you go. So, it was a close game. It was a very close game. Um, there was a bit of confusion with the rules at some point. Uh, she had me put tracking uh, tokens down for Gandalf, which threw me off a bit mid-game and spent a bunch of my resources. But like, you know, that that's the thing is like trying to remember. Okay. Who who gets what tokens? How does Gandalf interact with you versus Frodo? How does your movement work now? Gandalf moves from number to number instead of from number to dot, and you can't do the dot to dot thing anymore like in the first game. There's a lot of like, you know, I was playing one game and then I was playing another game. And again, yeah. that could be that we were just playing one after the other like you're saying well come on homie this is like a sequel or prequel to war of the ring like one of the most complex games in existence where it's like all right this is totally asymmetric there's about a billion pages in the rule book and how do we actually manage this every time i break out that game which is seldom but i'm such a huge lord of the rings fan that i own two (laughs) copies of that game because i wanted both the first and second edition and (laughs) I have a problem, I admit that, but (laughs) it's a game where I dread breaking it out because I know I'm going to have to spend at least an hour and a half relearning how to play the game in order to teach whoever I'm playing, even if they've played before. Because it's been so long since we played it, like that, it's a lifestyle game where you really have to know, like. there is a reason why War of the Ring is among, I think it has two listings in the top 20 BGG games, both for first edition and second edition, which is probably a bad thing. Like it, it shouldn't have yeah. distinct editions. They're <laughs> almost the same. Um, but it, it's still a huge beast to learn. And there are tons of exceptions. But what's amazing about that game is that it, all of the mechanics have so much resonance 
throughout them uh, of the theme. And I felt like that was true of Hunt for the Ring as well, but that may also come from me just being a huge Tolkien nerd. Like, having the the characters and obstacles come up and being like drawing a card and being like what it's my homeboy Tom Bombadil and he's hanging out of the withy window with like Goldberry and old man Willow and they're going to set up an obstacle here from the Nazgul of course he'd do that he'd interfere with them he's my homie um I love that stuff but right if you're not getting that out of the game I don't know that it's really going to deliver on the thematic front which makes it a very complicated hidden movement game to learn yeah that's the thing is i don't play game i don't generally play games for like that level of story or narrative when i look at a game it's all about mechanics and for me i have to the reason why i got hunt for the ring is i wanted a better fury of dracula i wanted something that was less complex and took less time than fury of dracula and it does that and it doesn't do that at the same time. Some right. aspects are more streamlined. Other aspects are way more confusing and difficult and frustrating. And I'm still searching for like that 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 sweet spot, that perfect hidden movement game. Maybe checking out that one by Plaid Hat Games. Uh, That's I what I was thinking because I played Specter Ops once before. I was not a fan of the base game, but there's a new base game that's uh, s- expansion as well that made some rules changes, and I think now that I understand board gaming better, I may enjoy it more. It's an hour long, and it's a lot more streamlined, and Plat Hat has such a consistency in terms of quality. Like, so I definitely do want to check that. Mm, Go on. on. (laughs) No, 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 no. Like, I I have a lot of affection for Plat Hat. I just, they, they feel like the kitchen sink of board game development companies where they just throw everything in whether it really works or it doesn't and uh it makes for squishier games uh not necessarily more complicated or not necessarily more difficult games like as you were mentioning for hunt for the ring i just find that with plaid hat games there's going to be a lot of situations where i'm going to have to go on to bgg and be like yo how do these cards interact? Because it is not addressed in the rules whatsoever, which oh, is great dude. because they swing for the stars. You know, they, they want to make highly thematic, really cool games with really ambitious rules that sometimes just come off a little bit squishy. Um, I mean, I still love a lot of the stuff they do. Sure. I mean, if you want to talk about squishy rules, Tanya Epic Zombies, uh, people on BGG had to make their own FAQ and had 35 questions that were not addressed in the rules in any capacity that needed to be clarified on the forums. 35 questions. Wow. And, like, important aspects of the game. Oh, my goodness. I've, I've got some choice words to say about that rule book. Well, at some let, point. let's hear about Orbis, because I think this is going to be a game that particularly Chris is going to be frothing at the mouth over. Okay. okay. All right. So Orbis, Orbis is, uh, I enjoy Orbis. Orbis is a fine game. Uh, basically, it's an abstract game. A lot of people like to compare it to Splendor. I think there's a lot more apt comparison to it being a more complex King Domino. Um, how the game plays is that you have a grid of nine tiles of five different colors, and on your turn, you must select a tile to put into your kingdom, as it were, your universe that you're building. You are a god, and you are trying to determine what kind of god you are. 
Mm-hmm. When you take that tile, you get resources on that tile that's already been placed there uh, called worshippers. There are cubes of five different colors, and all they do is they're what you pay for certain tiles to play them. But whenever you take a tile, let's say I'm taking a blue tile, I place worshippers of that color on each adjacent tile. So you're always generating resources for other players to use whenever you take your turn, which makes it, what do I need? But also, what worshippers do I need on the board? And if I put those worshippers on the board, how do I help someone else? Uh, when you're playing tiles, you play them uh, in a pyramid scheme. So five, four, three, two. And then your god is going to be placed at the top at the end of the game. And um, when you build on your second level, you have to have two tiles to support it. So two underneath, and then you wedge the new tile in between the two. But most importantly... The color of the tile that you play on the second level needs to be re- represented immediately under it. So if I'm playing a yellow tile, I have to have built a yellow tile below it to support it, which makes it this whole game of, all right, how am I going to limit my options today? How am I going to remove choices from my board slowly but surely as the game progresses? And that can be an interesting puzzle. I've played it, I think, six times up until this point, five or six times. And um, the game is is consistently interesting in that regard. Um, there tends to be a very strong pattern between players where this isn't a game that I feel like has a lot of longevity, but I feel like if you don't play your games often, you'll enjoy it. You know, for someone like me who's like, I have 30 games or less, I play them pretty regularly, and if I don't play them regularly, I go, what's wrong with that game, and should I still keep it? Mm-hmm. For me, Orbis doesn't have that staying power. But as an abstract game that scratches the same itch as something similar to Splendor or King Domino, it does a good job in what it does. The art looks nice, and I definitely think it would be a good game for a lot of people to pick up. Have you seen it all, Chris? We might have lost Chris. No, I'm here. I was actually just looking it up on the internet, and the artwork is fantastic. Oh, yeah. Um, a little bit of a tile placement thing going on, too. It almost looks like a streamlined suburbia. I haven't played it yet, but looking at Luke's draft review that he has so far, it, it looks really, really nice. I, I'm I'm digging that that game i i don't know i i enjoy kind of the splendor king domino level game especially because i i play a bunch of lunchtime games with like office mates or other people who are hanging out in downtown juno we hook up on fridays at our local coffee shop and we only got an hour to play so those really small bite-sized experiences that we can crush out in like 40 minutes that's that's exactly our jam The one thing I would say is this definitely works best as a three-player game. Four players, you run into this issue where, so inherently over the course of the game, each player sort of leans into two colors, you know? Mm -hmm. As you're limiting your resources, when you get to the last level, you're only going to have two colors, which means you automatically siphon yourself down to those two. Right. I literally had one player a a few days ago play where he only played two colors the whole game. Like, he didn't dabble with any other color. He just played yellow and red, and he almost won. I beat him by one point at the end of the game. But, like, it proved to me that that was a very valid strategy, that two colors is the best of both worlds, which means two things, twofold. One, it means that 
by the end of the game, it's not so much of we're fighting over resources as it is I'm buying my colors and you're buying your colors. And we're just kind of doing our own thing after a while. More like So the game progresses into a less interactive game over time. But the other big thing is that in a four-player game, so there are five colors, right? So I'm specializing in blue and green. You're specializing in green and red. Someone else is specializing in red and yellow. And then the last person is specializing in yellow and white, except white is something that everyone kind of wants a little bit of. Because it's whoever has the most at the end of the game gets the most points. So everyone kind of dabbles with that color lightly, which means one color consistently, no matter how many times I've played this game, one player gets screwed in a four-player game where they have a terrible experience, they score much lower than Mm. everyone else, and they're like, this game sucks, I'm very upset. But when they, but they also that person is always Luke when he loses. No, not true. Very not true. Because I don't often lose. But also, (laughs) also when I do lose, I'm very. I try to be very gracious about it. Uh, I actually enjoy losing often because it means that I have an intellectual challenge. That's why I love Baron Park as much as I do because I have a rapport with this other guy who's like. I win Baron Park every time, and I'm like, oh, it's on. Oh, it's on. And then he yeah. kicks my butt. I'm like, mm, I don't like it. Um, <laughs> but I really do. I love that sort of interplay that, like, challenge me to be better. Right. Uh, right. But anyway, back to Orbis. So, like, I'm like that too. I'm, a hun- I'm 100% like that too, Luke. I just want to tell you. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, but so, like, the first time I played with my buddy Jeff, he got completely skunked the whole game. Uh, every play that ev- everyone else made, inherently screwed him over without people trying to screw him over. And he's like, that was a very upsetting game, but I want to play it again. There's always that feeling of, I want to play it again to see, is it just me or is this game not great? And he played it again and he did way better the second time. But there was still another player in that four-player game who just got screwed. Like, it's with four players, it will always happen. So three players is by far the sweet spot for that game, which is nice because there are a few three-player games out there, you know? Yeah. Everyone is going to get a chance to check out your review upcoming here soon. I know that that's a game that I totally want to get my hands on. And it seems like it's kind of a a hotter game at the moment. It's got some buzz and it's got a cool look to it. Kind of a a cartoony, almost like Hercules is what came to mind. Like a a iPhone app version of Hercules from not the legendary journeys, not my man, Kevin Sorbo, (laughs) but the Disney version. Uh, not the Ameri- not the American Hercules. Yeah, dude. I, I oh man, I loved Hercules. You know, when I saw that artwork, I originally thought of that Santorini box cover. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, it's got that look. Yeah, yeah. Santorini's a brilliant game. Oh, so good. Yeah, it is. It is awesome. It's deceptively simple. I, I really uh-huh. dig Santorini. Um, so root. I'm not going to go into like a a big overview of this game. If you haven't seen it, go online, look at some pictures for Root because you'll you'll immediately know what you're getting into here. It's like a paw and claw sort of war asymmetry area control game. Uh, The the big draw of it is one, Kyle Farron's artwork is stupendous. Two, it looks like candy on the table. The meeples are the best thing ever, especially the lizard folk. And it is super adorable. That may deceive you into thinking that it is a completely friendly game. It is a game in which you are beating upon your opponents, but I actually don't mind that that much, even though I often find that... 
with war style games or take that style games, you're going to have to limit who is playing. And even my wife loves rolling the dice and crushing my, my poor little forest critters in this game. I think it has to do with how simple and uh, easy to understand the combat system is where you roll two dice and the results are ranging from zero to three equal probability on those and then the winner gets the higher number the loser gets the lower number and you kill each other's units equal to that amount capped by the number of units you have there it is very simple very intuitive and it doesn't feel like you're as invested in battle which is kind of cool maybe some people who want heavier duty war games are going to be like, yo, that, that, that's too simple. Uh, but for the type of game that it is, the presentation that it is, the speed in which the game plays, once you know the game, which I'll get into when you don't know the game, uh, then it seems to work really well. But the, the, the major thing that's going to get people talking that has gotten people talking is that this is a super duper asymmetric game where every single faction doesn't just have its own little flavor. It is a completely different approach to the game. It's not to the point of vast where you're playing distinctly different games, but like the, the cats start everywhere on the board except for one spot and they are building all sorts of uh production buildings that give them points and also give them sorts of um uh abilities that uh allow them to interact with the game differently than the woodland alliance who are starting completely off the board and have to create these little revolutions and they have their whole like uh sympathizer uh deck of cards and then you have the the birds who must to follow a decree of actions every turn otherwise their civilization collapses and is overthrown and then uh, the the vagabond and the uh, otters and the lizard men they all play incredibly different everyone except for the lizard men feel like they're fairly well balanced uh, the lizard men um, are interesting and cool but it seems like the universal thought on them is that they are not that great they can still win but they're not that great. So that that's the big worry with any sort of asymmetric war game is that is it all balanced? And the truth is Lizardmen aren't, but they're also one of the most fun to play. So I really don't care. The other cool thing about it is that once you know how to play, because our first game, which was four players and we followed the tutorial, uh, which was a really good tutorial in just kind of taking your first two turns for you and making sure everyone understood how things work. Um, with only me having read the rule book in advance, we finished in about two hours. And then I, I've played a couple two-player games, a couple three-player games since, and uh, the three-player game where we all were playing new factions we hadn't played before, but still knew the core concept of the game. We finished in about an hour and 20 minutes and that felt awesome to be able to play that in that short a time and that's exactly what i'm looking for out of it something that's lighthearted is your your focus on the the cool presentation of your faction and what they mm -hmm. can do um i find that it's incredibly thematic uh and it, it just is this awesome game that i don't think i've ever played a game that I've wanted to like so much and that may color my review. And I think I'm going to mention that in my review, but from its look on the table to the, the 
simple approach to a lot of the combat mechanisms to the the theme i i love this game it invited me in and i'm totally all about it playing is been like the highlight of the last two weeks and i'm just singing bc boys root down all the time i'm like how are we going to kick it going kick it root down that has been stuck in my head it's awesome that's all i can say about root right now yeah i mean I definitely am on the same boat as you in that I really want to like Root. Mm-hmm. Root is a game that's made by one of my favorite companies, you know, Letter Games. Uh, Vast in the Crystal Caverns is such a brilliantly made game that I absolutely adore consistently, um, even when the world around me goes. But it's so difficult to teach. No, it's worth it. It is worth it. It's worth it. Vast is like, oh, it's uh, one of my favorite games hands down easily. Um, but it doesn't play well below four players. It really doesn't. And Root is uh, generally seen as best at three. Like consistently from what I've heard online, from my experiences, it is best at three, which I think is super appealing and interesting. Um, I like the idea of the asymmetry. And the art, as you said, is freaking gorgeous. I adore the look of the game. Um, Lizard Boys, I want to play them so bad. I haven't had a chance to use either of the expansion groups, but the Lizard Boys has always called out to me as like these, I'm, I'm summoning a dragon over here. Don't mind me. Why don't you join our cult? It'll be fun. Like, that's just <laughs> such an appealing, that's such an appealing thing for me. And as you as don't as get a, into the theme, huh? Yeah. Come I think on. it's such that's a good. cute little game. Mm-hmm. But you know what? Like, from a gameplay perspective... I I I've tried I've tried really hard, but I just can't get into it. Mm-hmm. I don't like war games. I don't like what what I like most about Vast is that built into the roles is the aspect of I'm keeping you in track. You're keeping them in track. The cave is keeping everyone in track. Everyone has a goal that inherently balances out the other characters, and that's rewarding and yes you have those situations where one player isn't playing as well as everyone else Mm -hmm. and lets another player get in the lead because of that that can be an issue but the cave kind of helps to alleviate that in root there's no like self-balancing it's just kind of like if someone just gets the game and everyone else doesn't that's it there's no there's no stopping that Mm-hmm. Other than that awkward catch-up mechanic of having um, alternate goals in the deck, which I found has ruined every game I've played with them. Like, just straight up brought the game to a halt and made everyone playing with those alternate victory conditions feel like it changes the game so drastically that it's not enjoyable. Really? The the dominance wow. cards? Oh, yeah. The first time I played the game, I was in the lead. I took the dominance card because I was controlling enough areas as the the birds mm-hmm. to just kind of sit on them. And the game became, all right, how do we stop Luke? And so every every turn that the other two players have, they would try and fight my units. And then right. I would just move more of my forces into those three locations I needed to hold. And it was just a war of attrition where I eventually won because they couldn't do anything about it. Well, the, you know, that's they, if you're playing with the dominance cards. I mean, like, I, they are in the game itself, but, you know, you don't have to play them if you have them in your hand, and they are super risky. Like, they're a Hail Mary. You wouldn't want to do them unless you are in a losing position where you don't think you can win by points. And that is a way of saying, yo, I'm going to make it so I win the game unless people come after me, which... sure. You know, that that is an opportunity to win the game 
that you might not otherwise have. And again, if you don't play it and discard it, then it's available for anyone else to choose if they want to do it. It is a permanent right. change for you exclusively, but it doesn't stop other people from winning based off of points. I mean, it, if you can't control those locations as the losing player, then right. other people are just going to be like, okay, fine. Um, I'm just going to go ahead and keep on getting points. So right. I, I always I, view I them as super risky mean. and not worth playing unless you are really certain that you can pull out that win. Right. And I, I understand that's how they're made to work functionally. I see the thing that, you know, the game is trying to do. And I see that for some people it will succeed. But for me, it often felt like as the winning player, I could just take one of those. And if I hold enough territory and have enough units on the board, I just win, you know, 10 points in advance. Like mm. the rich get richer in root very easily, in my opinion. Yeah, I, I don't think that I've had that experience. And maybe with more plays, that'll come out. But I, I find that there there's a, a different arc in the game. Like the, the cats in the... Uh, birds will have a steady progression in points, but the Woodland Alliance, because they can repopulate all over the board, they get more supporters it, through the, the sympathy uh, tokens, and then the Vagabond, they both kind of snowball, and so they, they have more of a slope than a direct angled line as far sure. as how they're getting points, and... I, I found that they can keep on getting into the game. And once someone is at the point where they are almost unstoppable, then they are gaining enough points that the game is going to end in the next 15 minutes sure. or so. Uh, so I, I find that it isn't that much of a drag. Now, again, I, I think there are concerns of balance that happen in a game uh, where there are so many asymmetric elements going on. But to me, it, it is a bit of a sandbox that you're you're experiencing these things. There's the thematic element. I think that overall, it's about as tight of a design as you're going to get for the mechanical element while still having this level of kind of approachability because it, it is something that can be a bit of a beast to learn, not nearly as much as Vast. Um, and like I said, the tutorial is pretty good. Um, and within the, the first game, I'm able to really effectively describe what each faction's role is. So I, I think that once you learn it, you don't have too much nuance to have to remember for the second game. But... I don't know. Like I enjoy going in and seeing how the different factions interact and I'm not as invested in who's winning or losing. I still play to win, but right. the experience itself uh, is, is completely joyous to have the absolute asymmetry with thematic elements going on, the stories that happen based off of your interactions. I, am 100% on board with Root and just want to play again and again and again and probably again. And we'll mm. see how I feel in a month or two months or anything. But yeah, like this is completely unlike Terraforming Mars or Spirit Island, which I also have like this strong attachment to as far as games. And that's what's so interesting about it is that like this delivers in a completely different way than those two games but I, I have similar feelings of just needing to play more Root. 
Sure. Which and th- I can I can definitely appreciate that. You know, it's it's a game that has many appealing aspects to it. Uh, for me personally, I just didn't feel like the the need to explain the game over and over to new groups of people was worth like the entry fee. Like for something like Vast, I don't mind teaching it every time. With mm-hmm. something like Root, I don't enjoy teaching the game. And unless you play with the same group of people, it never feels like I. It feels like I'm just gonna like win. I'm gonna trounce because I understand the game better. Well, you than need to play else. the Lizard Boys then. Give yourself a handicap. <laughs> right, which is another what twenty five, thirty bucks on top of the fifty, sixty dollar price tag of the base game, which is a lot of money to handicap myself in a game that I'm not super in love with already. You know what I mean? Like yeah. I want to like the game, but I've played it four times, three or four times now. I've tried three of the different factions, and I I can't say that I've had fun with the game. I can say that I was like, that was an interesting experience each time, but I never felt like I had fun. Well, you heard it here, folks. Luke, terraforming Mars hater, Minch, hates Root. That's, yeah, I mean, that's <laughs> accurate to my life. And, you, you know, I want to like more games than I do. Yeah. A lot of people are like, why don't you just turn off your brain? Why don't you just enjoy things for a change? Why don't you see the brightness in life? And it's like I do, but I can't change who i am right you can't right. change that about me so i want to like root i just yeah can't. yeah and i i don't expect that everyone out there is going to like the game or has to like the game but i i think that it deserves right. a lot of the popularity that it's getting right now and oh, sure. if you like adorable games or you want a new approach to like area control combative games that is uh, a little bit less mean i don't know there you can have some mean moments in root um it's just games like say uh commit where it's really cutthroat give me a much different feeling when i'm on the losing end of a really nasty combat than this game does and i I don't know it's worth checking out and i'll have a review for that upcoming soon but we That's need to get awesome. back to what Chris is doing. Uh, you mentioned some games. Oh yeah, no problem. Yeah, you know, I, I was. Uh, I thought it was interesting that you knew what Hail Mary was. <laughs> hey, I know a few sports things. I might say hat trick now and then. I might right? say Hail Mary. I might say tenacious D, as in tenacious defense. From defense. now, on. that's actually a good segue, Jack, because um, there's this kind of cool secret thing that some sports fans don't want to let out, which is called fantasy sports. You know, <laughs> football's the most uh, common one, but um, I find it really interesting, you guys. I wanted to share this with you. Like, yeah, you know, football fans, football players, I've played all kinds of sports. I was mostly a basketball player, but, you know, I play every sport. And it's interesting how defensive these guys get when I link so much of it to gaming. Uh, half of them are joking, you know, they're like, get out of here. Da, da, da. But I'm like, nah, man, there's like some really cool gaming elements with this. Um, for If you guys haven't ever done fantasy football, it kind of just works simply like this. You take all of the players in the league and you draft them. Uh, right. 
That's what I was saying. We're drafting players. Hello. But and so then you kind of follow these players throughout the year as they play in their respective games. It gives you an incentive to watch more games. Um, and it's really addicting. You're trading. You're making trades and offers with other owners. You're following the league rules. Uh, you know, a couple of years ago, some people tried to make side deals and use real money and all this other stuff. And well, we use real money. It's like a dollar a trade. And so it like racked up. It racks up. I mean, I got to play the PlayStation Four. I got was from winning fantasy football two years ago. Nice. Right. But it's interesting. Like you know, the drafting is fantastic. You know, I had a for example, I had a guy get hurt. And I have a kicker that's on a bye week, which, you know, they, each team gets a break. And so now I got to I got to put a kicker in. I got to find a guy for my hurt guy. There's guys that are left over on the waiver wire, but everybody's fighting for those guys. And I'm trying to share with these dudes that there's so many game elements to this. And, man, it's just really interesting how defensive. No, no, no. I'm not trying to hear that. You know, I actually think that fantasy football, fantasy sports puts our total spin on sports and like actual ex-athletes and jocks or whatever you want to call them like can't accept it why do you think fantasy football is so much more popular than other fantasy sports because that's the one you hear about and i don't hear about fantasy hockey i don't i mean occasionally i'll hear about basketball or uh, baseball but it's not nearly as popular as fantasy football yeah you know i explored some other fantasy aspects and um Fantasy hockey, there's not enough guys. It's not big enough. Fantasy basketball, well, there's games like every other day. So you'd have to keep track like every – you know, so I know some guys that are doing fantasy basketball and they're swapping guys and they're on it daily. The once a week NFL season's only 16 games, once a week. So it's like this extended super long board game that you play for three months. And, um, you know, I made a comment one time that almost like – I mean, I got fried when I was like, hey, this is just like – you know, uh, if I got my weapon in Final Fantasy and I got my defense <laughs> and my shield, um, you're doing quarterback uh, passer rating and you're doing like your defensive guys. You're trying to put the best defensive guy. I was like, hey, it's the same thing. It's the same thing. Don't say that. Blah, blah, blah. It's, it's interesting. Um, like, I don't know. I'm more of a sensitive guy. I can I can I can touch into that part. Some of the guys I know that are sports fans can't get into it. But my my I guess my whole point to this would be like. If someone wanted to get into sports and they were gamers, I would totally recommend fantasy football. Can you do it online? Like, uh, are there ways of playing it across distance? Because I, I'd imagine if you were isolated, like you, you're someone who's like, I want to play the sport or I want to get into the sports ball and I have no idea how to even start that and you don't know how to awkwardly get yourself into some group at your office or maybe at a bar or something you know is there a way that you can do fantasy sports online yeah ESPN Yahoo Sports I found that the uh, there's several of them out there the ESPN one is the most streamlined and the most popular and you know it gives you stats on the guy so you go in and, you know, when you're subbing your guys in and out, so you can click on the guy and it gives you all their stats. You know, just like on a card, if you're playing a game, it has all the guys' stats. And it's like, oh, well, he's expected to do this against this team. And so, like, I've sat guys because they're playing, like, a super powerhouse team next week, put a weaker guy in that was playing against a weaker team. And then the weaker guy ended up outperforming my better guy. Total game strategies. You know what I mean? Totally. I got good stuff. I mean, and, and so... Um, and for me, I'm not a big fan of one particular team. And right. So like now I get it when people are like, oh yeah, well, I want to do fantasy. 
You know, I just want to see good matchups. I want to see good games. I want to see people get beat up. I want to see super awesome plays and competitiveness. Um, but, you know, I actually really it's super addicting. And again, you know, you could you end up learning so much about the players. It's ESPN app will walk you through it all. And so many people are knowledge of it. Like when I first got into it, it was just a buddy. And he was like, hey, we can just set everything. So all the owners just had an owner's meeting and we just made the rules and set it however we want to. And I got heat for that, too, when we were there. Because I was like, hey, it's like we're designing our own board game. <laughs> and they were like, you nerd. they were hating on me, you know? Like, oh, man. And we're in my buddy's shed with beer bottles. And everybody's rowdy and wet. It's just, it was just funny, man. But, um, I, I, you know, I don't know how someone would all of a sudden get an interest in football. But the fantasy stuff is super fun. So uh, that's, that's kind of what I've been doing off the table. Well, I, I think that sports viewed from the perspective of like people competing over some objectives, like it, it is accessible, even if you don't typically like the culture surrounding it. And one of the things that I, I really love about fantasy sports, which I haven't engaged in, but I've observed this from the outside or even working like the Bosco sports desk back when we were, you know, working together at Bosco is that it gives you investment in teams that you might not otherwise or it gives you more hope for a team that is hopeless you know like Detroit Lions or you know whatever like you have a reason to did I even get that city right is it Detroit yeah 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 oh, nice of, nice the, the you guy, know I know a couple our, sports our, things our I'm remembering from Bosco's 10 years ago fantastic. yeah uh, our so, commissioner our commissioner of our league for the last three years is a huge Detroit fan yeah so. well I mean we give like, them a lot of crap because they suck. Even if it's a losing team, you can still be invested in what the individual players are doing and what the individual plays are. And it, it gives you a new layer to appreciate something that may otherwise be like miserable hopelessness. Yeah. yeah. And you know what's another it kind of interesting? Like, you know, smart guys like us, man, you would just need a season. <laughs> Because, again, all the information and the storylines are filtered through this website when you're trying to organize who's putting in. So you end up, like, figuring out who's hot, who's got behavior problems, who's beating up their wife, who's sitting because their leg hurts. And I mean, all kinds of stuff. And, I mean, you could – smart guys that knew – that just had any sense could jump in and they could figure out the NFL in, like, a season. It's I can't help but just imagine at this point Jack rolling up to, like, his local high school, like – Hey there, fellow humans. Uh, well, how about them sports, huh? <laughs> exactly. <Good times>. You know? <laughs> I, I have a, a buddy at my office who is like the biggest basketball fan I know. Uh, he knows like every stat. He knows every winning team from. Uh, careful. Yeah, well, he <laughs> is like legit the the level of nerdy that you can get about Tolkien like way beyond me like the person who's like I can speak elvish and then they return with oh are you talking about Quenya or are you talking about Sindarin uh and, and like this level of knowledge like all he did as a kid is just look at stats and look at books and go to the library to check out like historic basketball information like this dude knows way too much about basketball uh and he's a pretty awesome guy uh also super duper extra level of spicy nerdiness um but uh yeah the 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 fantasy stuff um 
has given me enough of an entry point in hearing other people talk about different players and different teams that I can occasionally just drop a little tiny bit of knowledge and then be like, I don't know anything else. <laughs> like, I, 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 I can be like, oh, man, you know, the Lakers, they got LeBron now. So this big shift there and be like, I just exhausted 100% of my current <laughs> basketball knowledge and just hope that that got me by, you know, that I could pass in a social setting. That one stands on its own. That one stands good, the LeBron one. But um, no, you know, in fact, they used to do it with like newspapers and they would take the like uh, it's like stock market section with the box yeah yeah with the box scores and stuff and they were doing all their stats and and they would just write stuff down when they traded players it's like wow man with the top with the trench coats the cigarettes and the hats and the, they look like they were at the horse races or something so uh, Jack I got some bad news for you I read this morning that Iron Fist is canceled yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so this is bad news for me because Iron Fist, Daniel Rand has been like my longtime favorite superhero for ages. I love Power Man and Iron Fist comic books. I love the Ed Brubaker stuff that like resurrected the character, and uh, I, I've just always loved kung fu stuff. And oh yeah, absolutely. Um, season one. Well, let, let's get to season two. Season two of Iron Fist, which I watched recently, was a vast improvement over season one. So that means it went from terrible to kind of occasionally good and mostly okay, but also bad. And so it was not as much of an increase that it warranted following seasons. And there was so much whack with that show. I mean, the, the best thing that I can say is that season two no longer had Danny Rand being a petulant arrogant and complete idiot uh walking around going like i'm danny rand who's the immortal iron fist protector of kun lun sworn enemy of the hand every single sentence like come on dude just let go of that uh and he was just so whiny and awful um and like i i i'm totally fine with finn jones i think that he's a good actor uh, there were some really cool elements. Second season, you had Colleen Wing and Misty working together all the time, and it was so good. There were so many cool things about the second season, but also a lot of the terribleness from season one carried over. And yeah, it's canceled. And rest in peace, Iron Fist. And that ending was whack and terrible yeah. for season two. So I don't even know where season three would have gone that I would have been appreciative. But you know what? Whatever. Uh, hopefully he'll just show up as a character in Luke Cage from now on. I mean, honestly, I've always thought that Luke Cage and Iron Fist are really boring by themselves, but when in tandem work super well. And I think that, I I mean, I don't like the Netflix shows anymore. I haven't liked a Netflix Marvel show since Jessica Jones season one, but I think that if they took this and went in the heroes for higher direction, that could be super interesting. And that was mentioned tons on some of the articles I was reading because I was like, all right, well, what are people saying? Where are we going to go with this? And the heroes for hire was the was the one of the biggest ones, and then the Colleen Misty show. Yeah, sure. yeah, the, uh, the daughters, daughters of the dragon. Of the dragon. Yeah. yeah, yeah, they wanted to see the daughters of the dragon, and I, you know, I felt like. First of all, I loved Colleen Wing and I loved the Misty Knight. Misty, the reason I love the Misty Knight character is because she, 
I'm all about if you can get me to hate you, then. <laughs> and so, like, the Misty Knight character annoyed the shit out of me with the whole, like, I'm just a cop, and then what, I'm this, and I'm whiny, and I'm going through all this stuff. And I was like, you know what? She got me. Because mm. every time she came on, I was like, oh, God. But, you know, still going hard. And I was like, you know what? Okay. You got me hating the character. You got me. And then I just thought all the characters in Luke Cage were um, a lot more interesting. Yeah. You know, Finn Jones did get a lot of heat for just kind of being a whack Iron Fist for some well, reason. I, I mean, guess people weren't really feeling the kung fu in it. It was one yeah, of the biggest right. issues. Well, the action, the, scenes, lost. The, the action scenes in season two are way better. Not Daredevil letter level, but still way better. And that that was a really disappointing element of this cancellation is that I, I felt there was a significant enough improvement that a season three might have verged on the level of kind of good and occasionally just meh, uh, which would still be probably not worth the amount of money that goes into making a show, but it would have been satisfying to me to at least see where it goes. Uh, Luke Cage is still probably my favorite show that that's the netflix marvel shows um it, it's got a ton of style and the music and everything and chris and, and then bush master yeah exactly stokes it's mariah stokes mariah stokes oh man i i love that stuff and, and when danny would come on luke cage and interact in that level it made me really hopeful for a heroes for hire show and hopefully it'll be there eventually or you know some semblance of it and if not i mean everything gets remade a million times eventually we'll get something yeah you know iron fist was kind of like it just didn't like I, the luke what got me about luke cage was all these characters i mean i i was the season one cottonmouth stuff, I was like, what? It was just so mesmerizing to me. And then they kept just bringing more what I felt like were mesmerizing characters. Like, what is up with this guy and his story? Like that Bushmaster stuff. This is all over some rum. And then this story just plays out. No, it's about like a legacy and all of this. And, you know, they took some liberties and the nightshade angle. And, and I just felt like it was more uh, comic booky. The fighting in it felt more Power Man-ish. Like... When they hit somebody, somebody's going through a wall, things are getting busted up, and it just, you felt, I felt like I was watching a comic book, whereas the, I watched some of the Jessica Jones, I don't know why I couldn't get into it, maybe it's because, you know, John Ritter's daughter, I can only see John Ritter, I don't know, <laughs> I miss John Ritter, I don't know. Yeah, maybe. well. Because it's John Ritter's daughter, right? Uh, I, I don't know. I want to say it's John Ritter's daughter. That, that was a surprise to me when you dropped that hint. So all of a sudden I'm like, oh, maybe I got to look into this. But David Tennant totally made the first season of Jessica Jones for me. And also Luke Cage making his debut in it. I haven't watched season two of it. But a Netflix show that I have watched that I just wanted to give a shout out to is Disenchanted. It yeah. is a little inconsistent. Uh, it is not the best uh, cartoon series that I've seen, but it had a ton of heart and I love the characters in it. And it's the new Matt Groening show. Um, it's no Futurama like that. That's what I can say. Sure. Going out the gates, it, it, it doesn't have the consistency of Futurama, but I think I'm viewing Futurama with rose tinted glasses over the, the initial four seasons. And then some of the resurrected Futurama stuff, which I, those first four seasons I have so much love for and so much nostalgia for that mm -hmm. I may be comparing the reality of Disenchanted to my 
my nostalgia for the the entire duration. Of I totally Futurama. had to separate them. Yeah, I totally had. Did to. you like the show? I did. I yeah. thought that some of the little quirkiness, the little uh, um, the little demon or whatever. Yeah, Lucy. Like, <laughs> it just it had it, it was a little bit more on the subtle, and 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 I liked I liked that. Sometimes the like even like the Simpsons stuff is just like it was. It reminded me more of Simpsons than Futurama. Yeah, what I, I, what I love is Matt Groening has a, an incredible ability to make physical gags in cartoon form that are often so subtle, but they just make you chuckle, and you don't even know why. It's almost like a Monty Python esque weirdness that's just going on in the background and. It doesn't draw your eye, but when you notice it, you're just like, nah. um, and it's hard to put my thumb on. Like Lucy smoking is one of the funniest things to me. And I don't know why that is, yes. but just seeing the demon kind of like smoking, ashing his cigarette or like at one point he's smoking a pipe, like hanging out on the <laughs> castle wall. Yeah, it doesn't yeah. call attention to why he's doing that or anything. But in that moment, I was just like, Oh my God, this mm-hmm. is, this is exactly what I want out of this show. Um, and I, I don't know, like I, I'm I'm really looking forward to what's going to come out of future seasons of that. Uh, so, yeah, Disenchanted is kind of like my new hotness as far as Netflix show, though Daredevil season three is about to happen, which has a lot more Kingpin and the Vincent D'Onofrio Kingpin is like the best Marvel character in existence. Kingpin, baby. Yeah. I'm ex- I am willing to potentially come back to the Netflix superhero shows for the Kingpin alone. I don't know. Well, I've stayed away since the defenders, which, Oh, that was bad times, but I love, I love the Kingpin stuff too. Well, I mean, uh, it did have, I mean, I I don't want to come off as creepy here, but I did recently rewatch ghostbusters and I was like, you know, I think Sigourney Weaver and ghostbusters may have been the first time I felt attracted to a woman on screen. And I I didn't even know what I was doing. Like I was probably like three or four years old going like, I don't know why, but I really like that lady. Um, Also questionable again, why I was watching ghostbusters at three or four years old. Um, but the same thing yeah uh and sigourney weaver is one of the most amazing actresses and even she couldn't save defenders but i watched that and i was like man i may be not super interested in a lot of the netflix stuff these days other than bojack horseman who is my that will always (laughs) be my favorite tv show period end of story it is the i think the best thing on tv today but going back to the marvel stuff you know what you know what they're making that i'm really excited about Spider-Verse! Spider-Verse is coming to town! My body is ready! Yeah, that that Into the Spider-Verse trailer was pretty incredible. Like, I'm super looking forward to that. Dude, dude, they have such a great voice cast for it. The artwork is beautiful. They're pulling from all of the Ultimate Spider-Man stuff that I want to see. They've got Nicolas Cage as Spider-Man Noir. They have... Friggin' John Mulaney as Spider-Ham. Spider-Ham is going to be in the cinematic universe. (laughs) Spider-Ham. The character's name is Peter Porker, and his backstory is he was a spider that was bit by a radioactive pig. And and Jake Johnson is playing the traditional Peter Parker Spider-Man, but not just the traditional one. He's playing the Tobey Maguire iteration of Spider-Man. It's like... It's a buck wild concept for a movie. 
It's freaking amazing. They're tapping into the Miles Morales stuff finally. They've got the really weird characters like Tombstone in it and like the ultimate Green Goblin, who I'm not a huge fan of, but should make for some really good fight scenes. Kingpin's going to be in it. It's going to be freaking amazing. (laughs) If I... uh, Oh, God, it's going to be so good. So good. So when it comes to Spider-Man, you're an ultimate Spider-Man guy then. So... Yes and no. I mean, Ultimate Spider-Man, I think, is the purest iteration of Mm Spider-Man. I grew up with that, actually. So my introduction to Spider-Man was I was 10 years old. My cousin, who introduced me to all of my nerdy things, purchased me uh, a volume of the first 10 issues of Spider-Man, period. Like, of all time, it was like an Ultimate Collection thing Uh of the original, original Spider-Man comic. Right. And that was the same year that Spider-Man with Tobey Maguire came out. Same year. So... That was like the time that I became a board game boy, uh, not a board game boy, a comic book boy. And um, so from there, I started reading the Ultimate Comics because that was the most accessible accessible thing that was out there that was like, oh, I can pick up this volume and read it and still have a good time regardless of continuity and stuff. It was at my local library. It was at Barnes & Noble. And I read a lot of Ultimate Fantastic Four. I read a lot of Ultimate Spider-Man and a little bit of the Ultimate X-Men. Those were like the big three from that franchise. Yep. But mm-hmm. Ultimate Spider-Man for me always held a place in my heart. And recently um, uh, I'm seeing someone who has never read a comic before outside of The Walking Dead. And she was like, hey, I want to learn comics. Can you teach me? Uh-huh. And I was like, uh, absolutely. Uh, I'm going to make a big project out of this and it's going to be amazing. And so I started her off with Ultimate Spider-Man, which has led me to reread some of it. And I'll tell you what, the first two volumes, clearly Brian Michael Bendis, who's a brilliant writer, is kind of finding his footing. There's a lot of typos. The art's a little messy at some points, and there's some really awkward work in there. But once you get to volume three, oh my god, the, the comic is just, just it is the best of Peter Parker, in my opinion, the best of that kind of thing. And I'm really looking forward to using Ultimate Spider-Man to eventually transition into the Miles Morales Ultimate Spider-Man and really talk about that, like, really creative choice to, you know, kill off Peter Parker in an alternate universe and have this other character step in who was such a flag mark, flag, uh, flagship, whatever the hell you call it, character – that when they destroyed the Ultimate Universe, they chose to salvage that character and bring him into the main canon, like as the only bit of Ultimate Universe characters other than the evil Reed Richards to really survive that transition. Like, who's that's, in that's, a movie oh. now and who's in the video game that's like the hottest video game at the moment, like Miles Morales oh, right. is kicking butt. Yeah, yeah. And he deserves it. Like he is a brilliant brilliantly written character who has such a unique idea behind him and he has this whole like unlike some of the other like characters that are like oh it's female thor like that was an interesting dynamic because of how jane foster is written as a character and you know her battle with cancer which is obviously a very you know interesting and pertinent dichotomy within the superhero you know genre that doesn't really talk about that kind of thing but Miles Morales came in with his own backstory, his own family, his own history, all of this kind of stuff that sort of tied that made him a very unique, interesting character to get into from the get go, as opposed to these other characters who just borrow the cast of another person. Ironheart, 
a lot of people theorize is so unpopular as a character because she borrows all of Iron Man's characters as her own backstory. She doesn't have her own thing. She just interacts with Pepper Potts and Mary Jane Watson and all these other characters that already exist for Iron Man. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, Miles Morales has his family and his best friend and all these other people who really make him so much more, like Peter Parker did originally. Yep. You got to have a good cast of supporting characters in order to make any delicious soap opera work, which is what comic books ultimately come down to. Absolutely. Man, I remember all this ultimate stuff when we were working at the comic shop because this is early 2000. Yep. Oh, yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. This was like 2001, and, and, I think, is when that and, started. Man, that was some good stuff. I remember just first seeing ultimate stuff, Brian Michael Bendis. I want to say Miles Morales. He was like a... And he wasn't. He was like a uh, like a Latino kid or something. Wasn't he, he is. Yes. Yeah. Which yeah. Was a big deal at the yeah. time because yeah. there was no representation of that. So, and I still still think that's a big deal. Just how like how well ingrained he is within the overall Marvel universe. And certainly Marvel's been pushing that in the last few years. But I think it speaks volumes to like it, it's a really positive shift in marvel's willingness to represent more you know Mm -hmm. Uh, kamala khan is definitely a really big step in that direction as well such a huge character for marvel and um you know it's telling that she is like best friends with miles morales like they are super tight and Mm -hmm. super close and seeing that dynamic flourish and interact is just so like the champions um you sent that thing about the champions on the chat the other day that series the first 11 or 12 issues of that series really helps to like point out just how good marvel can be when they're on point Mm -hmm. and then some of the later stuff proves the uh, opposite in my opinion but it's not (laughs) yeah i can see like people being like you know oh you're just pushing ethnicity or you're pushing culture and and like that's always been kind of interesting to me because I feel like sometimes that's people just being a little bit maybe confused because when you have different cultures, you can tell different stories like totally. And also when you have an entire like legion of superheroes that are like all white or <laughs> all white and then a few black guys and all the black guys have names that have black in the title, uh, yeah. then it it does feel like maybe I'm not pushing ethnicity so much as i'm pushing reality here uh you know (laughs) new york city is not just a bunch of white people hanging out at the x-men manor like uh, there's a little bit more diversity in the world than that do you guys want to try to uh get at the news this time or uh let me let me run down a couple (laughs) news topics here i i realize like we are we are just burning through time but real quick there are a couple things that i wanted to mention uh that we have to address one Christian Peterson has stepped down or is stepping down in the process of uh, being CEO of Asmodee North America. He was the founder of fantasy flight games. And then through all the purchasing and everything, he became like the head honcho of Asmodee and like, it's the end of an era. Like that dude got his start in just like going to conventions with these games that he was like cutting all the components for if you haven't done it, go and watch the Shut Up and Sit Down documentary on Twilight Imperium, and that will give you everything that you need to know about Christian Peterson and why this is like a significant changing of the guard. And I, the one thing that I want to say is 
I don't really mind Asmodee consolidating all these companies, even though it's a little bit terrifying, like Disney consolidating all the properties out there, because I know that there are plenty of small up and coming companies that are doing their own acquisitions and their own changes in order to become bigger and bigger companies, which leads me to like greater than games and dice hate me, which I mentioned earlier, uh, who have just now created through spirit Island, one of the most beloved games of the last year and a half, two years. And uh, they, ended up announcing just a couple days ago as of recording this spirit island jagged earth which i might say the cardboard herald was the first one to put up any preview content for and that was a huge boon for us and big thank you to uh the greater than games folks and maggie Mm -hmm. specifically over there who is a big fan of what we have done up until this point and was so kind to let us get the first scoops the hot scoops on that and i stayed up late on a school night or work night in order to get that out and i am very thankful that people really dug that that first uh look into it um then these other things uh i mentioned fantasy flight game uh a game of thrones second edition and there's a new expansion coming out uh, have either of you guys played game of thrones second edition no Mm-mm. or i guess game of thrones period um uh, it is an older school game at this point, which is weird to say, uh, but it is a really thoughtful strategy war game where it's going to take you like three and a half hours. It is best at six players, exclusively six players. Uh, I wouldn't recommend playing it at a lower player count unless you have the expansion Feast for Crows that lets you play at four players pretty well. Um, It's all right at three. An expansion that lets you do less players. Yeah, yeah. Well, it kind of changes up the, the scoring parameters of the game, but it is so tightly balanced so that a six player game is keeping everyone in check. Everyone is feeling cornered in and oppressed by their neighbors in a six player game. And you lose some of that in lower player counts. So they kind of change up the board a little bit in order to make it not as, uh, unbalanced, uh, as it might otherwise be, but, it's still absolutely best at six players. If you're going to go for that experience, that's what you should be going for. It is a game where inevitably people are going to get betrayed and you're going to feel like uh, you hate all your friends by the end of the game. There are some hurt feelings. There's some uh, sense of uh, like, why did I even play this game? Because I just got in the last turn, my complete butt handed to me, but that feeling dissipates as soon as you realize like the majority of the game, I was having such intense nerve wracking fun. And I don't know what's up with this mother dragons expansion. Like it it sounds cool, but it increases the player count. That's the last thing that I was looking for out of the game of Thrones. Um, I, I almost feel like maybe because of the popularity of the series, a third edition that made it a, a little bit more accessible with some more modern ideas would have been best. But there is a new expansion coming out to this game that's like at this point, I want to say like 10 years old or something. So I, I'm interested in what's going on there. Now, I mentioned new companies really taking over uh, and and developing a presence and making some of the hottest games of the world. So, Luke, what's up with this Gloomhaven app? God, that was from such a long time ago. I don't really remember too much about it specifically, except that 
people were freaking out uh, around um, the one big convention that's name it's escaping me, but uh, they announced that a Gloomhaven app and Steam game is going to be coming out. Uh, I think this December um, is when that's happening. So like, um, obviously Gloomhaven is a big, you know, talking point for a lot of people. Yeah. Uh, people are very excited about the whole campaign aspect. I have a number of friends who have actually played five hours of it and went, eh, that's not for me and just kind of stopped, which it's, that's a huge chunk of money, like $150 sure. or something to spend on a game where after five or seven hours, you don't have an opinion on a game to the point where you're like, I'm just going to stop because I'm not wasting my time anymore. Where the app is now going to be a $15 option to just play the game, play with whoever you want online. And I think it's a good sales technique for them at this point. Yeah. They've sold as much Gloomhaven as they're going to with the normal game. So why not sell the app to all the people who aren't willing to shell out that money and tap into the video game market as well while you're at it? Yeah, I'm, I totally agree with you. You know, I'm trying to. So this is one that I've been seeing everywhere because we don't usually play with like too many people. We're usually in between like three or four players. Four is kind of rare. So we usually keep around two, three players. Um, what's the draw with Gloomhaven? Like, why is everybody talking about this one? Is that a, is that a genuine question you're yeah, asking yeah. me mm -hmm. or is that just mm -hmm. a rhetorical? Yeah. Uh, no, for, for you. I yeah. think... The big draw for it it's is beautiful. just the amount of content in the box. Like there are over a hundred hours of content in the box easily. And everyone gets real excited about the idea of just like, I'm going to be playing this for actual years and never get tired of it, theoretically. Ooh. But people are getting pretty burnt out and tired of it after a while. And I have a huge issue with legacy games generally because – Honestly, I've had really awful experiences with having a consistent group of people to come back to a game time and time again. <laughs> and so a legacy game that has over 100 missions is like, that's never going to fly. You know, there are probably dozens of copies of Gloomhaven out there that are sitting, you know, getting dust, you know, coated on them because the group of players... There's that one player who can never make a game and you got to like wait for him or just cut him out of the group. And eventually you're just playing solo, which a lot of people play it solo, which for me is just not fun. But with a video game, I can get behind playing a video game solo, you know, mm -hmm. uh, it's quick to boot up. Uh, there's no like setup or anything like that. Um, it's an experience that, you know, I can sort of sit back and relax and just kind of do my own thing because for board games I play board games for the social aspect most prominently and without that social aspect board games just don't have too much appeal to me so being able to have it in an app form that's way 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 cheaper easier to yeah. use and 